0: Hey folks, it's good to be back on the Unfeigned Christianity podcast. Again, the intro music is done by my friend Corey Steiner, who has recently produced his first professionally recorded music album, The Good Wins at the Last, which you can find at www.coreysteinermusic.wordpress.com. Wow, it has been a crazy month. We moved, actually, since... The last episode that I've done on here. I did not expect that after starting the podcast, just two episodes, then I would do a big move. Um, our family has been living in a two bedroom apartment in Northeast LA for uh, two years now, actually. And about a year into it, we felt like, boy, with three boys, <laughs> we need more space. There's no, not really any yard space there, a place for them to play. And so we started looking last summer, summer of 2018, started looking for a house and just could not find anything. Um, A lot of the big issue here in L.A. is the price, obviously. It's very expensive and then uh, very strict for what they require as far as your income to be provable on paper and everything. And I am self-employed in all my work, and so it's hard to prove that, especially since we had just moved from being overseas where we were supported and then we didn't need as much we had very low income anyways all that people would deny us up and down and finally this summer we would show up at a place to look at and they'd say all of you are going to live here like a two or three bedroom house and and we were getting just kind of sick and tired of it like what why won't you let us apply you haven't even seen you haven't even given us a chance yet anyways we had decided that Well, it just is clear, obviously, God does not want us to live or to move to a new place. And um, so we started doing some painting and remodeling of our apartment just to make it a little more homey and so forth. And then the next week, a house in our price range came up with both front and backyard space. And it was just crazy we went and looked at it the The owner showed up which is very rare usually it's a management company and he really liked us found out I'm a handyman and he liked that because the house was actually kind of crappy it needs some things fixed up and but it, it just it fit our needs we liked it we looked forward to it we applied we got it and yeah literally within like two to three days we had a house and so <laughs> we uh repainted the whole house did some other things um, to get it ready and then moved and then we had a a camping trip in Yosemite National Park which we had planned for several months ago and it's just been a crazy month and that's why all of this I had planned to publish episodes bi-weekly I might have to say bi-monthly no <laughs> It won't be that long in between, but that's why everything just got kind of delayed, and it's good to be back with you all again. Today's guest is a longtime family friend and a casual mentor of mine, Merle Burkholder. Merle works as staff pastor for Believers Fellowship in Northern Ontario, and he's also the administrator of Open Hands Ministries, which is a ministry that helps people in majority world nations develop saving groups so they can become more financially independent and stable. It's a really neat ministry. I I haven't seen it firsthand, but I have heard testimonies of people who are working in those countries who have saving groups like this. And it's it's, I think, perhaps one of the most effective ways we, from nations, from economies that are a little more wealthy a little more have a little more resources available that we can actually use our resources to help now i as i understand it i don't think open hands uses money from other people they just train the local group how to save their own money and to keep each other accountable and so they just kind of provide the teaching the training the oversight i believe that's how it works um some like microfinancing groups would would take a little bit of money from the west or wherever people are donating from and use that to start the savings groups which is is okay but there's a lot of damage that can be done when when you just ship money from a wealthy nation to a a not as wealthy nation Um, that's not actually what people necessarily need especially because in sometimes in those countries they don't need lots of money they just need to learn how to channel the resources they have um, so that they can Uh, save up for things they need um, so that it's not hand to mouth. They don't work all day for the food that day or um, even just to be able to provide better water development and so forth in those nations. Um, So I I love this type of ministry um, that Merle is administrator of and works with. We don't talk about that on today's podcast. Today we discuss men taking personal responsibility for their sexuality. In my last episode, I interviewed Trudy Metzger and we discussed sexual abuse that happens within the church even and how we as a church can become a safer place for those who have been abused, maybe even for those who are abusing because this stuff happens right in our midst. And part of that, I believe, is us as men beginning to take personal responsibility for our sexuality. I had a call with Merle um, and some other brothers earlier, and we were discussing this thing, the, the issue of sexual abuse in church. And he just shared how he has a burden for us as men taking responsibility for our own sexuality. That's where it all starts. And I just said, hey, would you mind coming on the podcast and talking about that? I actually have him, I had interviewed him, For a course that I have online, which you can go to my website and discover more about that. But then when we had set the date for that, I said, hey, can we just keep it on longer and and do this podcast? So I'm grateful that he obliged me in that. It can be easy for us as men to shift blame for our sexual failures, our sexual tendencies. We can shift that blame outside of ourselves, to other forces. Uh, maybe maybe it's women, maybe it's culture, whatever we use, kind of put the blame on. But that only leads to more issues. Solving sexual sin, whether it's addictions, abuse, whatever it is, that starts when you and I begin to take personal responsibility for our sexuality. Obviously, women need to take personal responsibility for their sexuality as well. But The issue is we as men, right? Right now, there's the buck stops here or it starts here like something, a new legacy begins right now. If you're listening to this podcast, a new legacy can begin with you and I today when we take ownership of our sexuality. Many of you may know that I've written a book on this topic, Live Free, Making Sense of Male Sexuality. It's a conversation with the reader about my journey into sexual sin and finding freedom from it, as well as what it means to live out healthy male sexuality. Just exploring that further. You can find the book at www.thelivefreebook.com. And if you're curious if this would be a good book for you, even if you're a lady i have had ladies read it and say it's really good for them too although it it is totally aimed and from a male perspective but if you're curious about it you're just not sure you want to pay for the book or whatever you can go to my website and get four free chapters on my website absolutely free you, you just put your email in and then i automatically send you four free chapters just go to asherwhitmer.com and you'll see right away the option to receive the four free chapters of Live Free, Making Sense of Male Sexuality. There are 20 chapters in the book. This just gives a good perspective of whether this book is for you. And now, I am excited to share with you my conversation with Merle Burkholder on men taking personal responsibility for their sexuality. Yeah, well, thanks, Merle, for being here with us. I uh, have recently started a podcast, Unfeigned Christianity, and and basically just, we talk, excuse me, we talk about the issues that test the genuineness or sincerity of our faith. And kind of in planning and thinking about the podcast while I was doing that, the whole situation with Cam um, and the the sexual abuse that was happening in Haiti came to a surface, kind of erupted. And so kind of the first issue that I've been discussing is sexual abuse and sexual sin. I had a conversation with Trudy Metzger um, in the first episode, or actually it was the second episode that I did on the podcast. And now you're here for the third episode. You're my second guest. Glad to have you on. I, we have had dialogue about, we had some dialogue about the, the cam situation. I know you work in Haiti with open hands ministries, but then we've also had some dialogue about just sexual abuse in church and, and sexual sin and how to deal with that. And so I, I'd just love to talk with you about how the church can deal with sexual abuse inside itself it's kind of a an ugly topic to discuss in a sense because here we are as a church trying to live holy lives trying to exemplify christ in our lives and in our relationships with each other but then there are there are times where we don't and not only times where we fail but where we completely violate one another and so it's really tough conversation to have but i think it's important that we we do have it that we do talk about it you in one of our conversations about this you mentioned your burden for men to take responsibility for their sexuality would you want to just kind of share a little bit what what you mean by that and and how that would look in a individual setting in an individual life
1: yeah i think that um sexuality is so powerful because it connects with uh, us physically and there's the emotional intimacy component to it and there's a spiritual component to it because marriage is the representation of the relationship between Christ and the church and so and sexuality and sex sexual, this sexual experience is part of the expression of that intimacy in marriage. And so I think that it's a very, very powerful thing. And we, we haven't done a very good job historically of uh, dealing with it openly and, and just talking about sexuality in our families and Mm. in our churches. And so I think that as we move into adolescence all of a sudden and into puberty all of a sudden we start to experience this powerful drive and this powerful desire that we haven't been coached or mentored on what to do with and how to handle. And so we may have had some general talks about mechanics of sexuality and sort of how it works and and what happens and and how our bodies change but but real honest inter intergenerational conversations Mm, mm. about how do you how do you handle your sexuality successfully and and how do we as men view women and um and so that and i think that what makes it even more challenging today is that when I was a teenager, probably we would say, "Well, ninety-nine percent of young men have masturbated. The other one percent are liars." And and hmm. um, but today it's more ninety-nine percent of men have dabbled, at least dabbled in pornography, and hmm. the other one percent are liars. And so then the way pornography distorts. Sexuality and distorts our view of women mm-hmm. is just damaging um, to to us as as men, mm-hmm. and so I don't think we have given many tools or many much coaching in what to do and how to how to handle it. I think we've in some ways caved into our society's obsession with sex and sexuality hmm. into where we've kind of accepted well this is what men do and and um you know they can't help them themselves and 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 I think even for my parents and my grandparents there was probably some thinking that it's the girlfriend it's the wife who has to hmm. make sure set the boundaries and and a physical, uh, physical relationship and dating. And then there's kind of a, uh, understanding of a feeling that the wife is there to meet the husband's sexual desires. And, and I think we bought into that thinking some, and so we can tend to excuse men. And I think that's why, the dichotomy of what you're talking about when women are involved in pornography kind of comes up because people are like, well women shouldn't like they know they mm-hmm. <laughs> they're the controllers, so yeah. If if they get messed up, man, we're all in trouble and and, yeah. but then for men it's sort of like, well yeah, we're you know, we we're sort of allowed or it's it's not that abnormal. Um and I just think that uh for a functioning society there has to be a focus on the protection of the most vulnerable Hmm. and that's first of all, the children and Mm -hmm. a society that doesn't, doesn't protect its children is, uh, is not going to, is not going to survive. It's not going to function well. And, uh, and I think that uh, as uh Infants, there's a physiological design where the mother nurses the child and, and the mother um, gives primary care to that infant child. The father is not absent. He's not uninvolved, but there are just things that the father cannot do for that child. Mm-hmm. However, as a child moves into toward adulthood, the role of the father becomes uh, changes and becomes different, and uh, um, and so there. We as men, our focus, the focus of our life, ought to be not how do I get what I want from those who are weaker than I or those who are more vulnerable than I. How how can I mm. somehow utilize them or subject them to where they serve my desires. But how can I give of myself to meet their needs and to care for them and to Mm -hmm. protect them? Mm -hmm. And so I think that the protection of children and then the protection of women is, uh, is so important and it's so, uh, reflective of the protection of a father God over us mm. as human beings. And um, so I, as a man, I can't pawn off the responsibility for my sexuality and dealing with my sexuality. My struggles with sexuality are not my wife's problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that is The last thing I should be doing is putting a burden on her Mm -hmm. because I'm struggling with my sexual desires. I need men who Mm. can be around me, who can coach me, who can uh, talk to me about the things that I'm experiencing and help me to know how Mm. to deal with those things and how to be so that I can come into my relationship with my wife from a position of security and a position of strength because if sexuality in our marriage simply becomes her serving me and, and it's all about what I want and then where's, where's, where's the mutual intimacy in that and where it's just a distortion. And I think when we kind of say, well, and, and I'm not, I don't, I don't want this to be misunderstood. I'm not against modesty, but but when we say that women need to be modest so that we as men can control our desires, I think it's I think it's a contortion of of what ought to be. I mean, it, we can be in a faith community and all the women dress modestly and but we're going to we're going to meet women who don't and we live in a highly sexualized society. And so we can't make recluses of ourselves. And, and the problem is that even in even within very tight knit communities where there's a lot of modesty, there's still sexual sin. Mm -hmm. There's it, it Mm -hmm. doesn't the modesty while it's, it's a, it's important and it's what God wants. It's, it's not the solution yeah. mm-hmm. to sexual sin. Yeah. And so as a man, I need to become a safe male that women and children can know mm-hmm. that they're going to be secure around me. I'm not going to take advantage of them. I'm, I'm not going to be doing things that are inappropriate. And I'm going to manage my my sexuality and take responsibility for it. It's my problem. It's my issue. Yeah. And I need to deal with it. And if I'm not doing it well, I need to find help and take responsibility for, for finding that help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a couple things that I think about in light of that. Um, I think of instances of sexual abuse or, um, you know, I don't know Jariah Mass's story, so I'm not going to try to project into that. But in light of that, I had to think about a, a guy, if I was in that position or if I was someone, most abusers, I don't have any hard statistics on this, but most abusers have often been abused before themselves um, or struggling with a huge sense of, confusion sexual confusion in their own identity and so forth. and so what you said earlier about intergenerational teaching or I, f- I forget how you worded it, but um, about sexuality seems so huge. like what if, what if there was places that these men, any one of us who struggle with a sin or struggle with temptation, that we could go and talk to and or, or even before we have to go and talk, but if there was just training and engagement. What let's take a church setting or a um, you you work as a, a mission staff pastor for Believers Fellowship Mission. Um as a pastor, how can as men in the church, just as leaders, how can we begin creating an environment or an atmosphere where that teaching or training is happening at a at a regular ongoing level does that make
1: sense what I'm asking yeah, yeah. sure yeah I think part of it is um, having open conversations and taking the secrecy away from it because mm. secrets are powerful and so if something is hush hush and we naturally mm-hmm. want to know well, what's that about and and if we feel like something's being covered over or something is you know, somebody didn't tell me the whole truth. And and so when we kind of have these surface conversations about sexuality, but everybody knows or consents that there's more to the story, then there's, it, it, become, it almost become an obsession or a fascination hmm. with, well, what's this about? And then there's all the perversions of hmm. sexuality. And I think you're right in that, uh often people who are abusers have been abused it it gets um it gets passed on but there comes a point where as growing into adulthood none of us had a perfect home none of us had a perfect experience so there comes a point where we have to look at our lives and say i didn't choose these things Mm -hmm. um God allowed them for some reason I don't know why and but here they are this has been my life story up to this point what am I going to do with it mm-hmm. and and honesty and dealing with those things rather than saying well I'm a damaged person and you know I was abused and so I you know I that's what caused and I think for myself there are things about my story that I, don't didn't understand and and you know I looked at myself as a fourteen year old and wonder why was I that fourteen year old what hmm. what and, and I think as I pursued some of that and thought about some of my childhood experiences there was a point and just in conversation with other men and telling my life story to other men. There came a point where I said, "You know, I think I understand that 14-year-old that I mm. was, and and I'm sad about that, but mm. but look at what you know. I, I mean, God, God can help me, in spite of those things that I didn't choose, to be a man of character and a man of integrity, and and uh, mm. so I think in the church. But back to your question about what we can do in the church community." I think there's something about having conversations about our life stories and about how we struggle. And I know you wrote your story. Mm. And I think that's incredibly helpful. And, and just the transparency, bringing it out in the open and saying, this is what I experienced and this is what happened to me. And mm-hmm. and this is how I dealt with it. Then that's very informative. Mm-hmm. And it takes the secrecy away and then it becomes... There's less of a tendency for it to become an obsession.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I think, obviously, it could be most powerful if that co- type of conversation happened father to son. But even some fathers are... maybe never had that. So that's why I was asking at a right. at a church-wide level, like, how do we create... Um, and even even some fathers who want to have that conversation with a son, their son might be struggling with something that's kind of unique to their story. Like it's, it's not the same or it's not. And as you said, sharing each other's stories kind of help. I know for myself, it was hearing, it's not like one person's story Mine matched up perfectly with that. And what helped them perfectly helped me, but hearing multiple different stories, um,
1: But just hearing somebody 20 years older than me saying, I struggled, or I'm still struggling. And I I remember some men that, well, I I had a man when I was in my late teens, I had a man that worked in the same business that I did. And he would take me out for lunch. And he was a salesman. He was on the road. And Hmm. he would talk to me about, encounters he had with women and how he felt and and what he did and and i was 19 and he was 40 and i just it was so helpful to me and in some ways it was more powerful than if my dad had sat me down and said okay like let's have this talk and yeah and so i think i think i think even within the church there are things that we can hear from other people's parents mm-hmm. and so as a community of men we help each other's children yeah. and and if we're honest about what i'm facing and what's happening with me that's tremendously informative for young men yeah. young younger men to know yeah. and i think one of the things one of the reasons why people don't talk about it anymore is because we're all we all kind of think we're abnormal yeah. and 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 we all are afraid nobody else is experiencing this. And if yeah. I start talking about what I'm experiencing, I'm going to get rejected. And, yeah. and and so that openness, and I know there were times when I talked to my wife about struggles I was having and saying, you know, I think hey, there's something wrong with me. And, and hmm. you know, her thing would be, well, go talk to other men, like, is what you experience very different from what other men are experiencing. And you need to find out, like, I can't tell you whether you're normal. Like, <laughs> you're yeah. you need to, you're not going to find that out from women. Like, you need yeah. to be talking to men. Yeah. And and then when I talk to men, then I find out, no, we're all pretty much in the same boat. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then we can engage in the struggle together and encourage each other and yeah. talk, help each other. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'd like to come back to that maybe in a little bit as far as when when we share or when we discover that someone or ourselves is is involved in something big like like whether it's addicted to pornography and not finding freedom or whether it's something violating a child before we go there though i i want to go back to you you mentioned the the power, how important it is that we as men uh, just a second. Have a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, trying to think what I was talking about.
1: Oh, yeah. you were saying when there's a case of sexual abuse or, yeah. or yeah. pornography.
0: So what, I guess um, one one thing that in light of this whole thing with cam something i've personally been thinking about a lot because i think it brings to light the the how often sexual abuse gets covered up in our in conservative anabaptist churches and and i say that not entirely just based on this one account but just from hearing having heard other stories before and a theme that often comes through is the church had like um some people that go to our church right now here in LA were talking about a, a previous church they went to had they're dealing with <coughs> excuse me, dealing with a, a guy who had molested another a younger girl, I think, in the church and um they feel the church is handling it really well, but what has shocked them is they knew that this guy struggled with some moral failures, but they had no clue it meant sexual abuse. And so that seems to be a a common theme, kind of talking about it as moral failures, which clearly it is a moral failure, but it's much more than that. There's even legal uh, implications that are involved in something like this. And what how do how do how does the brotherhood, the church? How do you work with a man you you want to see him walk in victory? You don't want to just. You want to extend grace to him, because that's what we're called to as Christians. And yet, this isn't just moral failure either.
1: Right.
0: And how 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 should a church deal, How should a brotherhood deal with that, if they're faced with. And by brotherhood, that that might be foreign to some of my audience, but that basically referring to the the church body. And the...
1: Well, I think it's important to have um, a child protection and sexual ethics policy, hmm. so that we know in advance w- when something happens what we're going to do, and the person involved knows what to expect so then you're not on the fly trying to figure out what what should we be doing and it also gets detached from whose relative is this and how mm-hmm. how is it going to affect the influence of a family in the church or whatever like you have you have a policy laid out this is this is what we will do and then it's important to follow that policy uh, so that it actually gets carried out, and I think that the requirements for reporting vary from state to state mm-hmm. and from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and so we need to know what those are and what we're required to report and to who it gets to whom it gets reported to. Mm-hmm. Um, but then within the body of the church, I think the Membership has, uh, should know the basic outline, not all the gory details, but Mm -hmm. they should know the kind of the nature of the offense, Mm -hmm. um, because if we're going to seek forgiveness and restoration, we need to know what's being forgiven and what Mm -hmm. where we're what the starting point is for restoration and restoration doesn't mean forgiveness doesn't mean that we act as if this never happened and trust and forgiveness are two different two different things and when joseph's brothers came back to him in egypt when they came to him in egypt He didn't automatically say, oh, so great to see you guys. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah, you guys sold me, but no problem. You know, we all love each other, and I forgive you. He put them through some tests Mm -hmm. to see how they would treat Benjamin. And Mm -hmm. I kind of think if they would have treated Benjamin the same way they treated him, if when he was going to keep Benjamin as a slave and send the rest of them home, if they would have said, okay, well, fine, sure, and walked away, I think his response to them would have been different mm-hmm. than when, you know, they come and say, please, like, let me stay here and send yeah. him home. I, I yeah. And so yeah. I think there's, I think, I think trust restoration is, is a different, uh, a different thing than, than, uh, uh, than, forgiveness. than forgiveness. So, yeah. 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 So, I think that in order for the church to know what the path to rebuilding trust is they have to know at least the basic details of what the offense was. And yeah. Yeah. And it seems like that if,
0: if a leadership of a church doesn't expose the basic details, obviously it doesn't have to be the, the gory details, but more than just moral failure, like if, if they don't communicate, the gravity of the sin or the uh, violation, and then later the body, people in the body find out what it was. It it the, could it possibly create some distrust in the le- even if the leadership was sincere, not trying to hoodwink the body or whatever.
1: It right. kind of
0: creates some distrust that just being fairly vulnerable and open.
1: And the get go would would have avoided. Yeah, that's true. Uh, And I have been involved in a couple of situations and I don't feel like I've handled all of them really, really well. And hmm. I think that um I think that um what you're saying there is very true and, and if if people have a sense that things were hidden from us or, or we weren't, we weren't told, then that comes back later and and destroys trust. And I, I particularly in one situation, I would have regrets of, um, how it was handled. Yeah.
0: I know You, you talking about situations where you feel you have mishandled. I know, like my initial response to the Cam thing, obviously there was a lot of emotion and some people extremely emotional against Cam, just horrified by this. Some people extremely emotional against Trudy Metzger, who was the the blogger and author who brought it to light. And um, I was, the day that it kind of came to surface, I was the thing I kept thinking about was, oh, one of the things people were just appalled by is if Cam knew this for so long, why, why are they just now coming or why, they, why haven't they been upfront about it? And I was thinking, trying to put myself in a seat. If I was in leadership, obviously I've never been on a board of a, of a ministry at that scale. But like, I know there's a lot of, of, um, it, it can be easy if you've never been in leadership to look at leaders and, and think they're just self-protecting or trying to protect the organization or or themselves and there's more to this story like there's more you know to to figure out a response that's appropriate that's that deals with the issue while also caring for other people in the organization, or whatever. Um, so I was trying to rationalize through all that. And I think there still needs to be plenty of grace given for leaders. But um you were a huge part. I knew you had done work in Haiti with Open Hands Ministries. Um, and so I had emailed you just to validate this. I had some people responding to me, wondering if I had any other, outside of Trudy Metzger, any um, sources, people that would validate these stories and uh and you were the one that told me that the yeah there was stuff going on back to to 2012 or whatever and i think like it, it can be easy to become very suspicious of any leadership um to kind of react in a way that that um it that doesn't trust leadership or doesn't trust pastors or authority, and I think, as I understand in my conversation with Trudy, I I would not have like I would have would not have picked up at all that she has some vendetta against Anabaptists or um, even Cam, but rather she really cares about victims and she wants. Them, their voice to be heard. Um, I think, as I observe on social media and so forth, it seems like what I'm talking about, the, the reaction and so forth is kind of a ripple effect of, of all the rest of us who can't believe something like this would happen. I guess my question to you, as someone who's been in leadership roles, um, you, you just mentioned a little bit ago, um, experiences that you feel you you have regrets on. what, what is an appropriate response for, for people looking on for people under the leadership? And what do leaders need in a time of crisis like this? from, from the, the, the greater body of Christ as a whole, but maybe specifically from the, the people they're directly leading?
1: Does that question make sense? Yeah. I think there's... I think it's appropriate for people to say I don't feel like you handled it appropriately. I don't feel like... I feel like you... It feels like you didn't tell us the information we should have had. Um, Hmm. And then I think as leaders we need to acknowledge our own failures in communication and our own failures in whatever aspect of the whole thing it is and have the humility to say, well, I I made a mistake and I, I take responsibility for that mistake. Um, so I think that goes a long way. I think in the situation with, um, cam i was in haiti over the time of the trial i wasn't at the trial but um i was in haiti at the time and so the missionaries there were talking about it and one missionary told me you know in the mission community here there's this divide of people who feel like well we should never have anything to do with cam again and we shouldn't you know we should just cut ourselves off from them and and then other people who say, no, we need to defend CAM and try to protect them. And hmm. and he was, he was saying, do I have to choose that or hmm. one of those sides? Or am I able to say, okay, they made some mistakes, but it shouldn't be the end of CAM in Haiti. And yeah. how can I be part of helping to go from here and and bring about what help cam to figure out what they should do and how they should respond and how to move forward in a positive way. So, yeah. and I think in the church, you know, we can so quickly alienate into two camps where we're against the leaders. or Yeah. We're, and yeah, in some ways if we are against the leaders. Then it's sort of like, okay, we're really standing up for the victims and, hmm. yeah. and maybe everybody needs a little help to figure out, this yeah. is a crisis, and yeah. maybe everybody needs a little help to know how do we pull together and yeah. and bring something constructive and something yeah. that something that's going to help to avoid this kind of thing from happening again, yeah. Yeah. and that we all we all learn from it. Yeah. And I know, I, I know, some of the men at CAM, and I, I, they are not disreputable men, and they are. Mm they are honorable men and I'm sure I'm sure they they look back on it with regrets mm-hmm. and so to destroy them or to destroy their characters I, I just yeah I just I just think we want to work to make it a learning experience and yeah to build something that's stronger together.
0: Yeah. I think it's so important to remember that something like this is a crisis, and so everybody involved is gonna is gonna be entering territory where they didn't plan for. Um, right. I think I think it's been a wake up call, and maybe it's overdue, long overdue for um, Anabaptist missions or organizations to have in place. I forget if it was you or somebody else mentioned that a lot. There are a lot of other Anabaptist ministries who are now trying to draw. What is their policy? What is their, right. um, and so it's sad that that you know Cam gets to be the the guinea pig or the um, of all of that. But and, and to acknowledge the need for even leaders to have grace is not at all to, to somehow justify or say that they have no, they should face no consequences. um, Right. Absolutely. For their actions. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe um, just to kind of wrap up our conversation here, I'd like to go back this whole conversation um, about sexual abuse, especially, but even, even when, we're having a conversation about taking responsibility for our sexuality. It happens as children, um, learning who I am as a a guy or a girl. Um, and the, you mentioned earlier that we as men are to be protectors of the vulnerable that I think of like a, a men, the stereotype is men are aggressive and kind of, you know the hunters like loud noises out there in your face that's obviously not true of every guy but our sex drive kind of drives us to be aggressive is a word and yeah. what that looks in an unhealthy way is what a man fulfilling his sexual pleasures whether it's abusing 30 young boys or just having sex with many different women or just consuming all kinds of pornography or even just habitual masturbation. Um, all of that is is—is our aggression being released in a selfish way. In a healthy way, it would be using that aggression to be the protector, to be the, the man caring for children. If it's me as a father caring for my children, my wife, um, if I'm not, married or don't have a family. I'm, I'm caring for the vulnerable around me. What, what does that look like? Or how can we, as men become protectors in our communities? What does that, what does that look like for the single guy who's 40 years old, who doesn't have a family of his own? How do, how do we, care for the vulnerable among us for the children you you and your wife have done a lot of work with with children you have fostered several children
1: four at least or more um i think what we did fostering for 25 years and okay. i think i forget they told us how many yeah kids we had in our home over that time but it was i remember some, four I think, so. but yeah I, that's that's we, what mine is we had four that were with us a longer Okay. Yeah. Longer period of time, yeah.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Twenty some children. Wow. So that's a passion of your guys' life. And yeah, I just love to hear some closing thoughts. What it looks like for for men for guys to be protectors of the vulnerable among us.
1: Well, I think that um, our the drive of our sexual desire, the drive of our sexuality is our inner desire for intimacy. Hmm. And so um, then for like some people say, well, what about the single man uh, if he's not supposed to get into pornography and masturbation? Like what's he supposed to do? and, and um, but I think that our sexual drive is, is um comes from our inner desire for intimacy so the the solution for our sexual desires is real connection with real people Mm -hmm. and where we are having conversations um in healthy ways uh that really matter and so i think our for some of us as men we're so aggressive and so driven that if we didn't have the sexual desire, we wouldn't pursue intimacy. We would just, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we just kind of go about our lives and be loners, but Mm -hmm. it drives us to relationship and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And so I think Mm -hmm. having that in healthy ways is important. And then there are way more children in the world than there are healthy parents. And Mm -hmm. so there are so many opportunities for, men to demonstrate healthy adult male relationships mm. with children in the context of the church, its ministry programs, um, just uh, in in um, in relating to um, – and I, I always say, you know, look for the – everybody's watching somebody who's 10 years older than them mm. or more and so as you go about your life, watch for the boy or the younger man who kind of hangs around you in group settings and, hmm. and wants to talk, be in the group you're in and hmm. like intentionally tune into those people and hmm. and take them with you, do stuff with them and, hmm. and spend time with them. But again, it has to be in ways that are that are healthy and yeah. where it doesn't doesn't become inappropriate. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for talking about this. Is there any any closing remarks, anything you'd like to say to a a broader audience in in light of the conversation on sexuality and, and dealing with sexual sin and
1: church and so forth? I think the combination of the secrecy about sexuality in our past and the highly sexualized society we live in creates a dynamics for it being one of the greatest challenges we have mm-hmm. in in this period of time yeah
0: yeah well thank you Merle for coming on you are I always appreciate talking with you and, and hearing your perspective your input into my life and into issues that we face in our everyday lives and um, one, one thing I I love about you and I love I think it's fairly typical about men your age is the the wisdom and the knowledge comes through like real life stories and just kinda of talking about your own walk with God and and it's not so much just theory but um or an actual kind of already fleshed out or having experienced that. And so thank you for taking the time to to share that with us.
1: I always look forward to talking to you, so the feeling is mutual.